Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Dalton. This week on Fly on the Wall, we're talking to GU Politics fellow Brian Stelter, who is the host of Reliable Sources on CNN. In addition, Brian has also written multiple books, including last year's bestseller, Hoax, about misinformation, news, and the Trump media diet. So Dalton, what was most intriguing to you about our conversation with Brian Stelter? Yeah, what encouraged me the most was how hopeful he was, particularly on the issue of the question we asked him about, is truth dead? Kind of a big question in our society today. And he was just saying that, no, it's it's not dead. It's up to us to determine how we want to keep it alive and, and just searching for truth. And that it's never dead until we decide that it's time for it to die. And I think that was very you know insightful about the, the hope for the future. Yeah, and I think it's coming from him, it's particularly salient because uh, he is a recognized face on cable news he's got a weekly he's got a newsletter that goes out and you really got the sense that he feels a personal connection and personal responsibility to journalism and to his audience and i think that was a cool unique perspective to have on the podcast yeah that's great um before we hop into these topics and more don't forget to follow us on social media you can find us at fly on the wall pod and you can also email our official georgetown email at fly on the wall at georgetown.edu so let's get right into it dalton we hope you enjoy our conversation this week Brian Stelter, thanks so much for joining us here on Flying the Wall. Thank you for having me. So as host of Reliable Sources on CNN, um, it's obviously a network with a long history. And as a result, many folks have preconceived notions about the network going in. They do. So <laughs> how do you about, go about building rapport with your audience when so many people have their minds made up about information coming from mainstream outlets like CNN? I should say, uh, I should say, they do. Yes, they do. <laughs> uh, not they do. So, uh, look, I'm, I'm, I love working at a place like CNN, which is one of the world's biggest news organizations. And yes, there uh, are haters, and yes, there are good faith critics also, and uh, yes, there are lots of people that don't know what to believe these days. So, I, I would say that uh, CNN is in the context of a lot of other news outlets. Um, that are trying to get to the truth, trying to report the facts every day, um, flawed, but trying their best to get to the bottom of what's going on. And that happens in this environment of information pollution, of information saturation, of parallel realities, of disinformation campaigns, all of this noise that sometimes obscures the actual news. Mm. So what I say is, um, the CNNs and the New York Times and the APs and the Reuters and the Washington Post and the Hoyas are trying to get to the truth. And sometimes it's messy and, and we're certainly imperfect, but we're trying to get there. And uh, one way I think that we can help people understand that is to show our work in the same way that we're taught to do that in algebra. Like show, show our work, show how we get to what uh, we report, um, show how we try to do it in good faith and, uh, and let people on the inside. Mm-hmm. By talking on this podcast, for example. <laughs> exactly. So you also wrote a really fascinating book called "Top of the Morning: Inside the Cutthroat World of Morning TV." You know, why did you write this book? What prompted that? And if you could go back now and change anything about it, like looking back, what would it be? Interesting. Uh, thank, thank you for the shout out for the book. Uh, so um, I'm just trying to think of what I would change. I'm, I'm, I'm stalling for time. Yeah. The answer about why I wrote the book was that. Uh, in 2019, there have been so many books written about the Trump presidency. There were so many more on the way. There have been so many fire and furies and rages and fears. Um, well, not rage yet, but fear. So, so I'm trying to get my timeline right. <laughs> so I looked around and I thought the only book that had not been written about Donald Trump was a book about his media diet, was a book about his television obsession, was a book about Fox News. 
uh, it felt to me like there was this missing um, thing on the shelf that needed to be uh, addressed and, and discussed and dissected. I think you can't understand the Trump presidency without understanding his media diet. You cannot understand what went wrong about the Trump years if you don't understand that he was being piped this this you know twenty four seven diet of um, in many cases misinformation, but also sensational hyperpartisan stories that fed his worst impulses and gave him bad advice. And so that's why I wrote hoax. Uh, hoax is is, is a really about that. Uh, it was going to be called Wingmen because it was going to be about all of his wingmen, his TV wingmen. He had all these TV friends who were his wingmen, the Sean Hannity's and the Dan Bongino's. Um, but then the pandemic happened and uh, we shifted uh, the plan a little bit. Trump early on in February of 2020 said, uh, the Democrats are trying to get me, you know, they tried to, you know, they impeached me. I was a hoax and this is their new hoax. And so he was trying to suggest the Democrats were politicizing the virus uh, and that was a hoax, and uh, obviously that's a damaging thing to say. So we renamed it hoax because I think there's a Trump's use of language, his abuse of language, ended up being a theme of the book. So what would I do differently? Well, uh, I had to finish the paper, the hardcover book when the pandemic was still raging in the summer of 2020. Uh, I then rewrote the book for the paperback. I did a lot of rewriting. I, I, I added the the riot and the Biden's election. I, I rewrote a lot of the book. But I still had to, you know, put the pencil down. I had to finish typing in April of, of this year of 2021. So if I could, if I could go back, I think I would. Um, I'm afraid to say it. <laughs> uh, I think I would strengthen some of my language about the ill effects of this um, alternative universe. Um, mm. There, there. I'm very proud of the book, but I, I think as we as we reflect on um, Trump's election, uh, Trump's Trump's loss, his denial of that loss, the riot, and then riot denialism, we can see just how poisonous um, uh, Fox's programming has been, has become, and we can see just how dangerous it is to have riot denialism and, and election denialism and COVID denialism, and all these all these conspiratorial denialism techniques. They're so dangerous, and uh, I, I, if anything, I guess what I would do differently is I would try to sharpen that language and try to be even more blunt about it. Mm, interesting. Yeah, and you know, from no one's ever asked me that, so I'm, <laughs> I'm sitting here just kind of I'm trying to be honest. Uh, that's that's what I would do if I could do it over. Mm. We when we sort of look back on how media has evolved and changed you know, from 2015, 2016 to now. I mean, like you said, with all of these, you know twos and fro's of, of denialism on some aspect or another of, of key, really pertinent and salient issues. Um, I'm wondering how you go through the process as someone who's tasked with figuring out how to deliver the news to the public. Um, how do you choose the stories that you believe are most important to get to your audience on air? Right. Well, I have a unique job at CNN. I have a four-part job as chief media correspondent. I have a show on Sunday, uh, which you mentioned, Reliable Sources. I I write a newsletter at night, I write stories for the website, I go on TV and I talk about those stories. And I feel like those are four parts of a, a chair and each leg of the chair holds up the rest of it. So the newsletter makes the show better and the live shots make my articles better and the articles make my show better and it all is a um, virtuous cycle or a virtuous circle. Um, but because my focus is media and because I'm doing it on different platforms, um, I can I can kind of say, well, this, 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 um, this news event, this um, this change at NBC, or this 
um, narrative from Fox. This is best as an article. I'm going to write this as an article. Or uh, this is best as a TV segment. I'm going to book a guest and do a TV segment about it. Uh, and so it's, it's really what is the best medium for this message? Mm-hmm. What is the best outlet for this story? When it comes to the show on Sunday, which is you know probably my most visible public-facing job, um, how do we think about story selection? So Because that's really getting to your question. We have planning meetings on Wednesday and Thursday and Friday where we talk about story ideas and guest ideas. And sometimes it is very guest-driven. So if we can get a A-list name, a bold-faced name, then, you know, then that's going to drive the, the decision. If we are really passionate about a topic and we, we think it's been undercovered and we want to draw attention to it, then we will go find a guest to do that topic. So sometimes it depends on what the topics are. Um, but I think the broad answer, the, the overarching answer to your question is, I want to use the airtime I have to cover to to um, to cover undercovered stories or to cover them in different ways and not sound repetitive. Mm. Not feel like I'm I'm the 23rd show in the 23rd hour talk about this same thing. Uh, now, to, to some extent, we are covering you know a collection of stories and we're all doing those. Um, uh, but hopefully in different ways. Hopefully I'm, I'm bringing a new point of view or a new guest perspective or a new angle. And I can do that by focusing on the media. Um, but that's that's my attitude is, how can I add value? How can I add a new perspective? How can I bring people new insight onto a story? Even if it's a story that's been in the news all week, how can I make it uh, distinctive? Mm. Does that so, answer your question? Yeah, no, yeah. absolutely. Okay. And, and- on a sort of related note, another one of your projects, you produced an HBO documentary largely focused on society's relationship with the truth. Many commentators say that we're living in a post-truth era. Do you agree with this assertion, or what does that mean to you? I think we're only in a post-truth era if we all give up, mm. if we all surrender. Mm. If we all surrender, then LOL, nothing matters, there is no truth, you know, uh, good luck out there. <laughs> But I actually, I actually think we're not, we're not close to that. We clearly are in an age of um, alternative facts and alternative realities. We're in an environment where the truth is very contested in a way that we can see and experience out loud, live, in a way we couldn't 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. Um, there are incredible advantages to having fewer gatekeepers and having, having more uh, outlets and having a greater variety of, of ways to distribute content. There are also great drawbacks, and, and that's where I get into information pollution in this sense that our information environment, the way that we interact with the world, is polluted. Uh, and I think pollution is, is a helpful way to think about it because we all can, we can conjure up what that means. If I live next to a factory that's you know pu- pumping out uh, smog or whatever, I don't know what, I don't know, I don't know enough about manufacturing. Um, uh, if I live right next to it, I'm, I'm going to get the, the sickest possibly, but... Everybody's affected when the atmosphere is polluted. Mm-hmm. Even if you're not out there seeking out that that crap, uh, you're, you're still going to be affected by it. And and that's true with something like QAnon. If you are seeking it out, if you're living right next to it, you're going to be the most impacted, most likely. But uh, even if uh, you make a conscious choice to avoid all that nonsense, you're still impacted by it because it might be your family member who is, who is poisoned. It might be your friend. It might be um, someone else. So... I think viewing it that way is helpful to reckon with like where we are and why people are so confused about what is true and what is real, what is up and what is down. Um, so that's partly why we made the documentary After Truth, 
Uh, After Truth was this HBO documentary. It came out in March 2020, just as the pandemic was was um, was beginning to rage. And uh, I think what comes through in the film is that uh, most people just want to know what is real and what is reliable. Most people don't want to go down QAnon rabbit holes. Mm-hmm. Most people don't want to devote their lives to the big lie. Most people uh, don't want to um, live in this anti-vax propaganda world where um, getting healthy and being safe is viewed as a bad thing. Most people just want to know what the weather's going to be and they want to know um, uh, there's going to be traffic uh, or construction on the way to work. And most people just want to know if their kids can go to school uh, safely. And most people just want to know uh, if Washington is working for them. Like most people just want to know what is true. And that's why I say we're not in a post-truth world. Most people just want to know what they can rely on, what they can count on. They, they want news outlets that are going to uh, uh, be trustworthy and, and, uh, and show them what's going on in the world. That said, there are also some folks who have just completely been enveloped by this alternative universe of information where they think CNN is lying, but, you know, Diamond and Silk is telling them the truth or um, or Alex Jones is telling them the truth. And that in those cases, what those folks have done is they've they've substituted reporting for repeating and conspiracy rhetoric. Um, So what I would suggest is a, a way to a way to. To, to measure content or measure the, the information out there is. Is it coming from people who are reporting-based, who work in newsrooms, who have standards and practices, who, who still screw up but have a process for trying to get to the truth? Or is the information you rely on coming from just yackers, just professional screamers, professional grifters who um, aren't actually gathering facts, reporting news, but are just yelling about the news? And unfortunately, it's a lot of the yelling about the news that exists. But I think most people just want to know what is really true. Is that too optimistic? Is that, um, <laughs> is that, is that naive? Is that naive? <laughs> I, I think it shows up in polling. I, during the height of the Trump presidency, when we, people would poll on the question of uh, who do you trust, uh, Trump or the media, which is a, that's a, it's a ridiculous framing because it's, it's, <laughs> you know, that shouldn't be the but But if you, if you use that frame, most people actually would trust the media more. Uh, if, if you would ask Americans, uh, is Donald Trump trustworthy and honest? Most Americans knew he wasn't. Um, 66, 70% sometimes in the polls would say he wasn't trustworthy. That means even some of his voters knew he wasn't telling the truth. And, and so that, that tells me most people are kind of in on it. They, they see what's going on. They can, they, can, they, can, they can tell when a liar is lying to them. They can smell it. They can sniff it out. And uh, that makes me optimistic in a weird way. <laughs> mm. Well, to, to zoom in on that a little bit, um, like you mentioned that, that question about Trump or the media. And more and more often we've seen the media become a character and a player in stories themselves as they emerge. Um, particularly we've seen the rise of explicitly partisan publications, the, right. the Daily right. Wires and the Voxes of the world. Um, right. And I'm just wondering from your view as a journalist, uh, to what extent is there is there a role in media diets of the public for that? Right, right. Yeah, I, I uh, the, the the way I see the landscape, there are um, these kind of old line traditional news brands like um, I would count CNN as one of them, but the AP and ABC and Washington Post that are that are out there with big news gathering staffs doing the meat and potatoes journalism when 
when something really bad happens or something really good happens, those are the brands that people turn to to find out what happened. And then on either side of, of that kind of traditional media ecosystem, there are these actually liberal outlets. <laughs> there are these conservative outlets. Uh, many of them, they do a lot of opinionizing, but they also do some reporting. They do some journalism. Mother Jones on the left and, and uh, Daily Caller on the right, and they are out there doing journalism. Uh, and then further on the wings, on the edges, on the fringes, there are these super hyper-partisan sites that, that go all the way toward conspiracy land, that go all the way toward um, uh, what we could call actually fake news, things that are truly bogus. Uh, they're just nonsense. What I think is harder to, to, to detect or to, to deal with is something that is true, but like tiny, like something that's something that's true, but you know, just a local news story. And then a hyperpartisan website blows it into a national scandal, acts like it's the biggest thing in the world, even though it doesn't affect your life, will never affect even your state, you know. Um, we, we live in an environment where there's there's rewards and incentives to hype up those things that are, they are real, okay, yes, that thing happened, but it's of no consequence. Mm. And uh, that is where I see kind of um, a, a, a challenging information environment that comes from these hyperpartisan sites on left and right, um, especially on the right right now. Uh, but, you know, and then what happens is, so those articles blow up and they go viral. And then I get emails and tweets saying, why aren't you covering this thing that seems really important? And, and I don't usually reply because I don't want to waste my time. But what I want to say is sometimes to the people, that's, a, that's like a local news story. You've never even heard of that town before. Like you never even heard of that, state, that, that, that city before. You never cared about that school board before. Why are you spending so much time caring about it now? And, and that's where I think choose your own news, alternative facts actually has an impact day to day. These, these theoretical concepts they actually happen. They're actually impacting, you know, they affect people every day. And ultimately, this is a media literacy conversation. Uh, if you have your head on straight and you um, can think critically through, why is this website trying to make me so angry? Why are they ginning up conflict about something that I hadn't even heard of yesterday? That media literacy question, when you think through it, gets you to a, to a healthier place. Oh yeah, you know, they're, they're just trying to get me outraged and get me to share the article for their own commercial interest. Once you realize that, you can kind of diffuse it. Um, mm -hmm. But some people maybe have a harder time realizing that. So moving on a little bit more into current events and still kind of keeping with that the media theme, the, the COVID pandemic kind of allowed us a chance to examine how we report on science. And we were wondering, yeah. how do you report on, on science as it's evolving? Something like masks initially being you know, not a big deal, then a big deal, and now there's kind of leeway on it. How do you balance these things that are changing, and then what kind of where do you get your sources for that? Um, well, uh, we could write a book on that. <laughs> First of all, uh, I have come away actually having more confidence in the the public health officials in the scientific establishment because they've admitted when the information's evolved, because they've admitted when the science has evolved. Um, I've come away from this pandemic having less trust and more disappointment in um, some of the political leaders, leaders in quote marks, who have um, misused, you know, who have who have denigrated science, who have denigrated health officials, who have or who have made faulty decisions that aren't actually based on the latest science. But but look, I think the pandemic radicalized a lot of people in a lot of different directions, in a lot of different ways, politically and culturally, and we're all still sorting through 
what it's done to us. So I reserve the right to take back everything I said <laughs> and to totally have a different point of view on this. Um, but but I think the, the, the bottom line is uh, there there is a there is a a there's a parallelism here between the news industry and the scientific world in the following way. When something when news breaks and we, we know just a few facts, those facts are subject to change and they're not the full story. And that is very true for COVID in March 2020. We thought it transmitted a certain way. Uh, we thought we needed to scrub down our groceries. We we thought we needed to do X, Y, and Z. We then we then learned a lot more. And where I think there were there was a failure, and I think this is really the, the fault of politicians, was to communicate that the information has changed, and thus our actions should change too. Um, our behaviors should change too. When I would look at playgrounds still being closed a year into the pandemic. Um, I think that's a, you know, I, I almost cursed, but I'm trying to be respectful <laughs> here. Like that, that just boiled my blood because it wasn't scientifically backed up. It was, it was shameful. Um, but I think the the scientists, public health were trying their best and they were acknowledging when the information was changing. And all of us as citizens in this, in this society, as news consumers, as, you know, living, breathing voters, we have to be okay and, and uh, we have to be on board with facts changing, facts evolving, the story changes. And that's also true in news when, uh, you know, we are told at first that X happened, but actually Y happened. Um, that is not the fault of the reporter who is trying their best to get the accurate information, but things do change. And, we, you know, look, I have a four-year-old and a two-year-old. What I want to teach them as they go into this chaotic, crazy world is, Resiliency, adaptability, uh, ability to, to change with the circumstances, mm -hmm. flexibility. You know, the, those are going to be the skills that they're going to need to navigate this environment. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I'm, I'm curious to have your, as, as a practitioner, as someone who is who's in the trenches of journalism day in, day out, so to speak, um, with those evolving facts um, and when you have to update reporting for new information, how do you keep consistent rapport and trust with your audience, especially in such a in an era where it's so difficult to be communicating to the public as someone who's both recognized on cable news and recognizable in the media? Right. Um, well, number one, uh, I'm in a weird job. And <laughs> it's a job that uh, uh, I'm, I'm covering, you know, Fox and other outlets, and there's a lot of incoming, and I get a lot of flack, and that's fine. Um, but let me take myself out of it for a minute. Um, there is a lot of trust in the media, even though there's also a lot of um, distrust and questions out there. There are polls that show, uh, you know, no one trusts the media. Trust the media at an all-time low. And that is, I, I believe those polls. I believe based on the question they asked, I believe they got that result. I believe people don't know, you know, who to trust, what to trust. But everybody trusts some form of media. Mm -hmm. It's just that some people trust Fox and others trust CNN. Uh, when there's a hurricane coming, you do trust your local meteorologist. <laughs> when there's a tornado warning in your town, you do take shelter, I hope you do, uh, based on what you're hearing on your local radio, your television, uh, or what alerts on your phone. And I look at that as an example. That, that's why I say, take me out of it. You earn trust by being there for people when they need you. And in the case of a hurricane or tornado warning, you earn trust by, by breaking into coverage and getting the attention of the audience and telling them what to do and telling them how to stay safe and being with them when they're in a stressful moment. That's uh, uh, impact of media. 
That's that's a there's that's how you earn trust in media. Now that's an especially climactic example, and, and it's not always that easy or, or simple or, or crazy. Um, but you earn trust in media by uh, showing up and doing the work and asking the questions and writing the stories. And uh, you're not going to make everybody happy, and that's to be expected. Um, journalism is not a popularity contest, <laughs> but it is an attempt to get at what is real. And like I said earlier, I think most people most people do want that deep down inside, even even if they're you know overwhelmed by political debates and even if they want their side to win they want to know what is real so they're not surprised you know mm. they're not bamboozled you know there were uh, before november 3rd before election week not election day election week there were outlets there out there you know promising trump was going to be reelected promising trump, and those outlets failed their audience because they 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 they, they fooled their audience and so an, an honest consumer of that content would look back and say i i can't trust that outlet as much anymore but trust is not zero sum, right? It's you, you, it's one inch at a time. It's it's a football field where you're trying you're one play at a time, trying to get one yard at a time, um, and you and you do and you fall back sometimes. No, 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 I shouldn't have said football because I'm not good enough with these analogies. <laughs> what do you do? You lose yards. Is that the right? Yeah, you lose. You know, sometimes you lose. Is that the right phrase? You lose yards. Yeah. But then you get back out. And it's first, and then you and you go again. You try just inch by inch. You try to get closer to the end zone. Okay, I think I almost got to that analogy. So <laughs> Obviously, journalism in 2021 is not easy. Politics in 2021 isn't easy either. But here at The Fly, we try to have a little bit of fun. Okay. So we're going to move into our lightning round. Okay. Um, it's three quick questions, first things that comes into your head. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> so uh, first off, growing up, who was your greatest inspiration? When I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, uh, R.L. Stein, the author mm. of Goosebumps books, yeah. mm. because I uh, made a website dedicated to Goosebumps <laughs> books and uh, wanted to get to know him. And eventually I did get to know him. And now he's a friend of mine. Oh, mm. wow. oh cool. Um, okay. Do you have any pre-show taping routines or rituals that you have to do before going on air? I'm a huge procrastinator, so I have to procrastinate. <laughs> I have to work right up until the second before the show starts. Mm. Um, I also like to listen to music in my uh, AirPods on the way into work, but that's boring. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and last up, uh, Halloween is right around the corner. What's your go-to favorite Halloween candy? Uh, I'm going to say Snickers. Mm. Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, I don't know if that's a good answer. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a such a... Base, basic brand. Trust in the media just went way down. I'm trying to think of a more interesting answer. Yo, uh, can I refer... Um, peanut butter M&M's? Oh. Peanut butter M&M's. Not the peanut M&M's. Peanut, yeah. The peanut butter M&M's. Mm. Okay. I'm glad I, they don't sell those everywhere because I would I would eat those. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you so much for joining us this week. It was awesome to have you. Your answers were very insightful and uh, we'll... Yeah, look forward to uh, your discussion sessions you have coming up here at Georgetown. Tuesday, 2 p.m. Absolutely. There's my plug. <laughs> Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Make sure to join Brian Stelter's discussion group, Real News, Fake News, and Everything in Between, Tuesdays 2 to 3.30 in the GU Politics office. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We have a bunch of exciting conversations on our flight path in the coming weeks, including a special episode on the Virginia gubernatorial election and a conversation with PBS NewsHour correspondent Amna Nawaz. Be the first to hear it by following us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod for the latest updates, 
or you can shoot us a message at our Georgetown email address, flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. Catch you next week.